Chapter One of Things Seen in Florence by Elizabeth Grierson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. First Impressions Florence, La Citta della Fiore, the City of Flowers. At the mere mention of its name, Visions rise in our minds of all that is beautiful in art, and all that is quaint and picturesque and turbulent in medieval history. Yet it is possible that as we journey thither, and draw near the city, we may feel somewhat disappointed as the train enters a region of low undulating hills, covered, in late summer and autumn at least, by a mantle of what might be mistaken for low, sad-coloured brushwood, but which is in reality a vast expanse of vineyards and oliveyards, which take their general note of colour from the dull greeny grey of the olive trees. The whole landscape is sadder, duller, tamer than we expected, a study in grisaille, as someone has expressed it. Plainly built farmhouses, oblong or square, with walls covered with cream-coloured plaster, rise here and there among the vineyards, and these buildings increase in size and number as the train circles round the shoulder of a hill and we find ourselves looking out over a broad valley many miles in extent. This valley, although it is covered by the same grey mantle that we noticed before, is so studded with tiny clusters of houses and villas that we would take it to be a wide-spreading suburb of some city which has not yet come into view. At a particular spot, the houses cluster closer together, running for a considerable way up the sides of two hills, studded with cypress trees, which encroach on the valley at this point. Where the houses stand thickest, cupolas, towers and domes appear, and as the train begins to slow down, the sound of church bells rises above the rumble of the wheels. We have arrived! remarks an Italian countrywoman, who has shared our compartment since we left Pisa, and who has been trying to enliven us by telling us how, after an exceedingly hot summer, the water supplies are running short, and that rumours of cholera are abroad, which statement, luckily for us, proves to be entirely false. And sure enough, before we have realised that we have been gazing for the last ten minutes on the mecca of our dreams, the train rumbles into an ordinary, commonplace, badly lighted station, and we find ourselves at our journey's end. But when once our luggage has been collected and placed in a vehicle, and we are on our way to our hotel or pension, all latent feelings of disillusionment vanish, for we are carried at once into an enchanted city, the architecture of which is so varied and wonderful, the paintings and mosaics and little sculptured shrines which look down on us even from the outside of the buildings, so strange and suggestive, the colouring so marvellous, and the memories that are called up so overwhelming, that we are tempted for the moment to wonder if there is any other town in Europe to compare with it. Perhaps the first thing that strikes a stranger is the extraordinary variety and beauty of the colouring. This is not to be wondered at, seeing that the walls of even the poorest houses are washed, not with the staring white lime-wash which we are accustomed to see at home, but with soft, delicate shades of yellow and pink and brown, 
which hides all deficiencies, and which takes on the most varied effects according to the light which falls on them, showing clear and vivid in the burning rays of the noonday sun, and soft and mellow and mysterious when that same sun sinks in misty splendour, or when the moon rises and the stars peep out. As a contrast to the soft, fairy-like tints of the walls, the roofs of the houses, which have such a gradual slope as to be nearly flat, are tiled with dull red tiles, which turn to ruddy brown as the years go by, while the wide timbered eaves which project far out over the street add to the quaint effect, and throw a grateful shade on the narrow pavements below. In one square we seem to have stepped out of this workaday world altogether, into that where the adventures related in the Arabian Nights took place. In another we find ourselves being driven through an open-air picture gallery. Or, as our equipage proceeds slowly along a fashionable street lined with richly furnished shops, we are suddenly confronted by a beetling fortress, not plastered, but built entirely of stone, on the battlemented roof of which we might well expect mail-clad warriors to appear. Soon Ajihu takes a shortcut through narrower streets and under dark archways, where the light of day can hardly enter, and we would fain call to him to go slowly, at a snail's pace if he will, so fascinated are we by the glimpses of quaint home life which we see on every side. Artisans in their workshops, women seated on stools on the pavement, preparing food for their next meal, or, having already cooked it, eating broth, macaroni or beans out of an earthenware pipkin, balanced on their knees. Girls sitting in groups on the doorsteps, busy over the finest of embroidery, or talking to strangely dressed countrymen, who have come in the early morning from the country, and who, now that their business is over, are having a mild flirtation with Francesca or Giulia or Teresa, before wending their way homewards. Then some low cavernous archway running under some great palace will be traversed, and we are out once more in the broad streets and bright sunshine, this time near the Arno perhaps, where pensions abound, and where wide arched doorways, sufficiently large to allow a carriage to pass through, afford us glimpses of cool courtyards and gardens, which, although they cannot boast the smooth green turf to which we are accustomed in England, are bright with sparkling fountains and gay flowering shrubs. We are fortunate indeed if we chance to have an introduction to the owners of some of these enclosed pleasances, for then we have the privilege of entering in and feasting our eyes on a tangle of colour the like of which we rarely see. Pink and white camellias, the ivory blossoms of magnolia, fire-red pomegranate flowers, yellow laburnums, purple wisteria, heavy sprays of lilac, luxuriance of roses, red, white and yellow, and prim little orange trees, gay both with blossom and fruit in spring, laden with fruit in autumn, which are set in green wooden tubs around the edges of the paths. Besides the flowering shrubs, there is a wealth of flowers, especially in spring, early summer and autumn, for in July and August the heat is so great that they wilt and wither. But, with the exception of these two months, flowers are almost always to be found in a Florentine garden. If we chance to arrive in the city in the early morning, especially during the summer months, we shall find the streets thronged with people, 
the markets busy, the fruit and flower sellers doing a thriving trade. Should our train be due between 12.30 and 3, we might be justified in thinking that all the inhabitants who could afford to do so had gone to the country, leaving their houses shut up, and that the musical harper, known in fairy lore, had marched through the streets with his wonderful harp, lulling those who had remained behind to sleep. Although the shops are open, there are few passers-by to enter them, and all the dwelling-houses present nothing but long rows of windows, closed in a most monotonous fashion, by sparred wooden shutters, like Venetian blinds set stiffly in a frame, through which plenty of air can enter, but which entirely excludes the sun, while on all sides are figures of workmen clad in dull yellow blouses, who, having thrown aside their tools, have stretched themselves out, face downwards, in whatever bit of shade they could find, on the broad stone or marble ledges which run round all the large houses, palaces and churches, and which serve as a convenient seat to any weary wayfarer, in doorways, under arches, or even on the pavement itself, and have fallen fast asleep. For in Italy the noontide siesta is as much a part of everyday life as bed, breakfast and supper are. In the late afternoon and evening we should find yet another scene. Outside the cafes are placed numberless chairs and little white covered tables, and there the more leisured citizens assemble in hundreds to while away an hour or two in talking and drinking tea, eating ices, or listening to a band, should there chance to be one within hearing. As evening advances, the working folk are afoot also, many of them finding seats on the ledges of the public buildings, or the steps that lead up to them. Here they enjoy the coolness of the evening air, and when they return to their homes in the narrow and cramped streets, they do not always retire within their dwellings, but will pull their mattresses out onto a gallery, or roof lodger, if they are fortunate enough to possess one, if not, on to the pavement of some quiet courtyard, and there they will pass the night. End of chapter 1